Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. I'm John McCaskill, and my guest today is Olympic snowboard cross athlete Graham Watanabe. Graham competed in the 2006 and 2010 Winter Olympics and is a two-times national champ. He was the coach of the 2018 Pyeongchang Paralympic snowboard team. He's married with a two-year-old little one at home. He says the application of mindfulness and meditation techniques seemed to be the most relevant as a competitor, but he's learned as a coach and parent how much more critical they are in these roles and how much he could have learned as a younger competitor. That said, he's glad to have had the experience as a competitor to teach him the foundations that have helped so much in more recent years. We're going to learn a lot more about Graham, his time as an Olympic competitor, as a coach, and now as a father. That's all here in today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. But before we jump into the conversation with Graham, I'll go ahead and stop here for a quick plug for our sponsors. All right, welcome back. As mentioned before the break, my guest today is Olympic snowboard cross athlete Graham Watanabe. Welcome to the show, Graham. Thank you so much for having me. How have you been, man? I've been really well. Yeah, I'm just uh, raising the kiddo, as you mentioned, and having a lot of fun doing that, especially during winter where I can share all the snow sliding that I've enjoyed my whole life. <laughs> and, and you're in Park City, right? I'm in Salt Lake, but yeah, uh, Salt Lake Park City area. Nice, man. So, yeah, the little one, and I think last time we chatted just via text, you were starting to dabble in the children's book area. How's that going? Yeah, you know, it's real. It's still really exciting, and uh, I've made some great contacts, uh, partially with your help, and also via some local friends and connections here, and it's. Um, it's good, but slightly unfortunate that I can't move forward as quickly with that as I'd like because uh, that's probably a labor of love in the beginning, probably not one of uh, revenue stream. So I'm going to have to <laughs> prioritize uh, financial contributions to the family before uh, engaging too heavily in that project. But sure. still very exciting, getting a lot of things down uh, that I can have a lot of fuel for later. There you go, man. Well, all right, before we get into any more questions, I'm starting every show by letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path and why we're doing this show. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. That all said, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of the show. So outside of your professional bio, which you just heard me cover, where I touched briefly on your Olympic career, your time as a coach, 
your family and and I touched very lightly on your mindfulness and meditation piece, which we'll obviously get into more later. But outside of that, what else would you like our listeners to know about you, Graham? You've done a pretty bang up job of hitting the main bullet points. Uh, I'm not a real complex guy. I, I definitely uh, I see myself as a family man, and that is my number one priority now. And um, and certainly for a long stretch there, snowboarding was an incredible influence on my life. Um, but family has always been an influence on that. My I grew up in Sun Valley, Idaho, and that's you know a mountain town. Uh, central Idaho, right along the Sawtooths. And so there's a lot of mountain activity, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding. Uh, there's a beautiful wood river uh, that goes right down the valley. So um, fishing and a little bit of rafting, you can go up north and get some better kayaking and things like that. So just nice. outdoors was always a big, big part of my life. That's awesome, man. And how did you end up choosing snowboarding as your primary sport and specifically snowboard cross it's pretty funny because uh <laughs> especially the discipline uh, it really kind of chose me um growing up in sun valley it was hard to imagine not doing a winter sport being a, a winter resort primarily and so i started out skiing from age four till eight or nine but uh, really just it, it didn't grab me. And when my brother and I around the same time both said, we're really not that interested in skiing any longer. My dad had an opportunity to get a good deal on some snowboards <laughs> and I had never heard of it before. And he just said, you know, give me a week um, and we'll all try to learn it together. And for the first six and seven eighths <laughs> days of that time period, I hated snowboarding. <laughs> And it came down to that one last run. And my dad, the way my dad tells it, he kind of spaced and said, let's go to lunch and we'll do one run after lunch and we can go home after that. Well, he took me to the lodge at the top of the mountain and uh, realized that there were no easy ways down. And it kind of just threw us in the deep end. And by the time <laughs> we got to the bottom of the mountain, we were making turns both directions and that early feeling of success kind of hooked us both. And, um, yeah, it was kind of uh, a no brainer after that. And for me, the community of snowboarders was small at the time. This was 92. And, uh, there were still segments of our resort that didn't allow snowboarding. So, um, it really kind of rallied a, a cool tight knit community in the area uh, of snowboarding and so I joined that community by joining my local club the Sun Valley Ski and Snowboard Education Foundation and they were kind of focused on competition so I just by nature started competing just to join the community and uh, it went fairly well <laughs> I made the national team for alpine snowboarding which is uh, racing disciplines like GS and slalom, just as with skiing. And um, quickly after making the team, started dabbling in snowboard cross just when it coincided with races that I was already doing. And that quickly put me on the injured list for <laughs> two to three <laughs> years. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it was a strange uh series of events that led to me getting 
having my first and really only major injuries during my career when I tried snowboard cross outside of Alpine. And instead of that deterring me from doing the sport, I was able to recognize how drawn I was to snowboard cross specifically and recognize that I wasn't taking the time to educate myself on the sport. And if I wanted to ever do it again, I needed to really understand what it took. And the national team was hosting a camp that summer at Mount Hood. And I just rung up the head coach and asked if I could attend and just spectate. And um, he he said, even if I didn't want you here, it's a public mountain, feel free to show up. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, they ended up hosting time trials, which he also said, as long as you're here, you're welcome to try the time trials. I did well enough to be invited to the season opener World Cups, which ultimately, long story short, led to me becoming the first American male to win a World Cup snowboard cross event. And that just shifted everything. I left Alpine behind. I had full funding for World Cup Snowboard Cross and that led to a eight, nine year career in the discipline. Nice man. And and when did snowboard cross actually become an Olympic sport? Two thousand six was the first year they had snowboard cross. And that was that was the year the first year you went. Right. That is the first year I went to which I actually started out as a wax technician. I was assisting the team having not qualified outright. And unfortunately, one of my teammates uh, got injured during training and I was able to step in and compete. Wow, man. Like everything is uh, just by chance that you happen to come across snowboarding as something that you were a fan of, kind of uh, fell into snowboard cross and then <laughs> fell into the Olympics. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than just that. It just sounds like that by the, the way that you're telling the story, that everything just happened by, by chance. Yeah, you know, I think it, it kind of speaks to some people view the happenings of life and the ways we fall into our paths as luck. And uh, I definitely feel like I lean more in the direction of preparation and opportunity. Uh, you know, I felt very ready to follow that path, or if I wasn't ready, I took the time to educate myself to be more ready. And then whenever opportunities presented themselves, I, I jumped on board wholeheartedly. Nice. Nice. And for when you were competing, what type of mental preparation did you do for, for the events? You know, it's funny. I, I definitely would never consider myself a uh, an aficionado or uh, or even any kind of practitioner of mindfulness or meditation or anything. It was. It's only really in retrospect that I can look at how I brought those elements into play. Um, and largely, as an athlete, it was um, a regimen that I actually kind of learned in high school soccer it was a stretching routine and it was um a little bit later starting to practice some yoga so it was really largely for me it was a mind-body connection anytime i was sitting down to um, stretch or practice yoga it was a way for me to shut off the other parts of my brain and really um, try to isolate connecting and feeling specific parts of my body. And in order to do that, I had to push out any thoughts about 
what I had to do that day or what had already happened that day or what race was coming up or, you know, any of those things had to be pushed out. And the ability to not only focus my thoughts in one area, but to quiet my mind in others became very helpful. And and again, I didn't don't know that I recognized it at the time it was more in retrospect, but I think that sure. was huge. I mean, that that in and of itself, just because you didn't realize or have it named as mindfulness, that is what mindfulness is, is is focusing on the here and now and pushing that other stuff out. You know, like you, you mentioned, focusing on specific parts of your body, doing the yoga, doing the stretching and, and focusing on the here and now. That's that is mindfulness. You just didn't know it at the time. Like like you said, what do you uh, what do you feel in in your athletic career or as a coach? What were your biggest obstacles or challenges that you faced or, or overcame? I think one of the biggest things, um, as far as bringing mindfulness in um, and using it as a tool in those areas, one is the ability to switch it on and off. Um, I think the fatigue factor of utilizing your brain is so much more so than that of physical activity. Um, you know, I can come home after a day on the mountain and my legs are just fried and I need to flop down or whatever, but I can still have a meaningful conversation with someone. But if I spend, you know, a day of competition where I am just so laser focused on the task at hand and, you know, it's hours and hours and hours of trying to have that level, <clears throat> excuse me, that level of mindfulness, I think that level of fatigue is totally different. And it's one that just knocks you on your butt. And so I think recognizing when it's necessary to have that focus and when to turn it off and relax and play and give it a break, that was really important because uh, as an athlete, obviously, I just, the fatigue factor is important. And as a coach, it became really important because the athletes feed off a coach's energy or can feed off a coach's energy. And if I started to show fatigue, then I'm not showing the level of attention um, that I feel the athletes deserve. And I think that was maybe one of my greater failures as a coach was that I tried to be too many things uh, too much of the time. And I didn't take the time to play with the athletes and not take care of business, you know, um, and unfortunately for them, fortunately for me and my family, I'm able to take that into my personal life and remember that with my daughter, no matter what, uh, what, how long the to-do list is at home, um, we should always take time to play and enjoy each other's company. I love that, man. And, and I have to relearn that all the time. I've got, you know, a, a similarly aged little girl, almost three-year-old little girl, and then a, a one-year-old little boy. And he actually turns one this weekend, making plans for his birthday party right now. But uh, anyway, it's, it's you have to constantly remind yourself to play because uh, you can get you can get focused on that to-do list. And I don't know about you, but I'm a very task-oriented person, and getting through that to-do list does help me mentally. But I don't think it helps as much as as it uh, as as playing with your little ones, you know, having that quality time. Um, 
So, you know, sometimes you need to put that to-do list aside and, and enjoy, enjoy life and just focus on the miracles that are right there in front of us. Um, so yeah. So since, since you're talking about being a father, what, what is your, uh, what does your fatherhood look like right now? How is, how is that treating you? You know, it's funny because um, as much as I learned that lesson of taking the time to play and um, when it was with my work, I tend to kind of shift personality styles. Uh, when it's something that where I have expectations from others, uh, I tend to go the direction of too much business. And then when I'm in my personal zone, I am so motivated and driven and uh, I don't know, fired up by play that I actually have to be careful that I, I don't neglect the to-do list. So uh, as far as parenthood goes, it really is and has been a lot of play. But as I'm sure you know, kids respond to and really um, and need a, le a certain level of structure and boundaries. And so I, uh, I actually kind of needed to hone it in and, and recognize that, okay, if I don't set these boundaries for myself and set that example for my daughter, then it's, we're both in big trouble. It's just going to be mayhem. Um, and so recently, uh, it, it actually involved prioritizing getting my daughter in daycare so that I had a little bit more time to take care of the house, to take care of myself, uh, and get some independence. And so I didn't start identifying solely as a parent and as a playmate for my daughter. Um, so now that I, I guess coming back to today, it's a really cool balance that I'm really lucky enough that my wife has been incredibly supportive to uh, help facilitate the ability for me to have time to spend on ideas for my kids' books, have time to exercise, have time to take care of the house without worrying about what's the kid doing in the other room, and uh, and give my daughter an opportunity to socialize a bit and things sure. like that. And then ultimately, when we are back together, I have full attention for her to nice. um, give whatever guidance I can. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you found it sounds like you found a pretty good balance there, and it's and it sounds like it's important for both of you. I mean, like you like you mentioned, your little girl gets some socialization outside of daddy, right? And then you are, yeah. are not that that playmate. You are her father, um, and that's that's important for her to realize the difference there as well. Um, and and obviously, if you are neglecting that to do list completely, that does build up a level of stress. Uh, it's you know a different level uh, in a different way for for parents writ large so it's good to have a break that allows you or at least a break from the little one that allows you to get some of the things done on that to-do list so you know exactly. as, as stress builds up in your life uh as a dad as uh you know dealing with the little one or maybe with your to-do list how are you handling stress uh that that you come across um you know I think quite well, honestly. Um, there was a, oh, a short stretch. <laughs> yeah. The earlier stages of parenthood, the newer it was, the uh, the more challenging it was. Because 
not only was parenthood new and and intimidating, but it changed not quite daily, but I'd say at at most every two weeks, you know. And so the second you feel like you're getting in any kind of rhythm, it would shift again, and you're trying to you're trying to shift with it. And that was the biggest challenge. But I think um, that in itself was a lesson in being flexible and not worrying about the small things. Like if I didn't have it dialed, that was okay. And just being patient that and knowing that it will come and everything that is challenging now will no longer be new next time. And just it's every, every time I feel like I'm blowing it, it's just really an opportunity to learn. So just being cognizant of and patient enough to recognize those learning opportunities and move forward from them. Yeah, there you go, man. It sounds like you're, you're doing a great job at, at noticing what's important uh, and, and how to flex and, and roll with the punches, right? So yeah, how, exactly. How, I guess uh, that kind of answers my next question, but I was going to ask how did, you know, being an athlete and being a coach, how did, that, how did lessons from that transfer to being a dad? But it sounds like some of that was already answered, but do you have anything else uh, to expound upon there? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that largely um, it, the more transferable stuff was as a coach, um, because then you're talking about relationships with other people um, more so than as an athlete in which you're kind of doing it your way. Um, granted, you're you're not ever doing it alone and you're considering other people around you in your space and everything, but largely decisions that you're making are based upon what's ultimately best for you in your career. Um, as a coach, as a husband, as a father, um, very much have to consider everybody and what's going to be best for the whole. Um, and really, I think the biggest thing was the lesson in patience. Um, and yeah, I did speak to that a little bit, but less about waiting for the shift to happen or using the learning opportunity. It was more about, quite honestly, recognizing, being introspective and recognizing that when I was often impatient, it wasn't because everybody else is an idiot. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's, you know, it's easy to go that route and, and feel like we know best, but it, it took some introspection to recognize, you know, that everybody has their own way of doing things and speaking specifically to coaching, the way I did things as an athlete was not going to be the best way for the athletes that I was coaching. And my impatience was just reflection of uh, my inability to see from a different lens. And so as I, you know, I mean, I probably coached for, let's see, I'm eight years out of competitive snowboarding and I pretty much got right into it. So I probably had six, seven years of fairly high level coaching and, uh, and it took the, probably the entirety of that time to really kind of dial in why I was impatient with certain athletes um, because a lot of athletes do have a lot of similarities. And so I would be successful with some utilizing things that I learned as an athlete, but the ones that it was not working, I wasn't, it took me a long time to recognize why. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, I, 
was good friends with a coach down in Tampa. He was a, a strength and conditioning coach for the Bucks and for the Rays at one point. And, uh, and then he ended up leaving because he felt that um, working with some specific athletes, they had what he called the, the curse of the blessed. Um, so they were blessed physically, <laughs> but because uh, they were making you know, millions of dollars as NFL or, or Major League Baseball, uh, they weren't taking what he was saying as their strength and conditioning coach uh, seriously, and they weren't working. Um, and so mm-hmm. he, he, felt, he said that was uh, some of his main struggles, too, was developing that patience with these superstar athletes who were just so gifted physically, but weren't prepared to work as hard as they needed to in order to be, you know, to take their performance to the next level. They were performing at an outstanding level already, but if they did what mm-hmm. he was telling them to do, um, then they would perform at the next level. And that patience was the, the toughest piece there. And developing that patience, that's something that, uh, that can come with, uh, funny enough, and, and incidentally, obviously the topic of the conversation here is, is that it can be developed through mindfulness and meditation. So I'm curious at what point, um, and you said you weren't an, an avid practitioner per se, but you are aware of mindfulness and that you've practiced it uh, and, and you've practiced it more so as a father. I'm, a, I'm curious at what point you became aware of the practice itself and, and what your practice does look like if you do have a regular practice. Um, I would say I recognized it as I, uh, as I got, became a coach because I regularly, before I was even coaching, I had younger athletes coming up to the system who were asking questions about, you know, how, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? And I had to really ask myself the same question go god you know i'm not totally sure i you know and again i feel like i use the word lucky but it's not quite accurate um but it was something that a lot of times i kind of fell into but it was the recognition of like okay this works for me and i'm going to keep doing that and i'm going to keep refining it whether consciously or not Uh, and that kind of speaks to now today how I keep in practice is more something of introspection. I will admit my mind-body connection where all of my mindfulness began has waned significantly. Finding the time to just sit down and stretch or get in a, a workout or whatever, it's, it's one that I've, I, need to, <laughs> I need to refine and, and get back into. Uh, but it's migrated to more time of introspection, um, just taking a minute, whether it's five minutes while I'm in the car to kind of shut off the radio and just be in my own mind. Nice. Um, there you go. Introspection is, is the biggest practice I think I have right now, because I think anytime my wife and I are trying to make a big decision, or if she makes it known that, you know, we disagree on something or I let her know that I disagree on something. I have to be able to articulate that to her and I have to be able to analyze if she articulates something to me, uh, whether I agree, disagree and the why of agreement or disagreement. So it's just, a, it's really a lot of introspection. And as far as raising a kid, being a dad, that's um, how important is this to me that I translate this to my daughter? How important is it that she 
says please and thank you versus how important is it that her face is clean after a meal? You know, like it's all just <laughs> you know you and I are living the same thing, man. Yeah, it's a it's a constant evaluation of of what's important. So it's introspection is the best word I can come come up with as far as my practice today. Nice. And then that that introspection, um, it sounds like you're you you know you're you're reaping the benefits of it. You know the communication, the being able to articulate what's important, both in your own mind as far as what's going on with your child, and then also uh, articulate what's important to your your wife between the two of you. Uh, that's I mean that's a that's a great benefit there because that was actually my next question is what what benefits have you seen from practicing? But you you went ahead and answered that. So does does uh, anyone else in your family, whether they're your immediate family or your extended family do that? Do they practice any type of forms of uh, medic, uh, meditation or, or mindfulness? I know my wife uh, has taken a more conscious effort, uh, whether as an athlete, she actually was a two-time mogul Olympian. Oh, wow. Um, nice. Yeah. And she, I think I knew that, but I, I, I probably forgotten it because uh, I've slept since we last hung out. <laughs> but yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. She took a lot more time throughout her career as uh, as well as afterward. Um, she's actually kind of revisited it in her um, business career um, and worked with the mental strength coach, um, has does a lot more journaling um, and has done bouts of uh, dedicated meditation, you know, with goals of I think it was something like five or 10 minutes a day for a certain amount of days in a row. Nice. Um, and so she's done some real conscious efforts. I think therefore she having practiced it and obviously sees the benefit of it. She probably does um, a fair bit of the more subconscious, you know, some of that introspection that we've talked about. Um, but other than that, quite honestly, I don't, I haven't really spoken with, family about whether or not they do um i would guess a lot of us do more than we recognize yeah i, I agree uh, and and quite frankly it's kind of an uh an interesting topic to to broach um and and it's almost uncomfortable at first and that's that's part of what i'm trying to break here with this podcast is that is that stigma of of practicing mindfulness and meditation and that it's not a it's not a weak it's not a sign of weakness and it's not for the weak um it's it's actually something that can improve your performance improve your state of being improve your state of mind um and i, I think discussing it is the part that has to change and how people perceive that is a part of changing that discussion right um so yeah man if you're if you're practicing i encourage you to start talking with people about it uh, because it's it's funny once you do, like my initial perception when I started meditating and, and practicing mindfulness was that when I mentioned it to people, I was going to get this look on their face like, okay, weirdo, go go and talk to somebody else about what it is you're doing. But people actually ask a lot of questions about it, and then uh, I've had some people who who have started practicing after I've spoken with them about my practice and how things have improved in my life. So. It's a pretty interesting uh, topic of conversation once you get past that initial part of where it's uncomfortable to start the conversation. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think that it's 
I think a lot of people can tend to lump mindfulness in with the stigma of uh, of like therapy or something. Like something must be broken if exactly. you need to do these things. And it's just so untrue. You know, I right. mean, in both cases, I mean, I just see such a huge value in uh, in therapy or mediation, anything like that. And then obviously mindfulness on your own, it can be so many different things and it's totally up to the individual to decide what that is that works for them. So, yeah, I, I just love that it's a converse, a part of the conversation now, because I think once, as you've alluded to, once people recognize that it's what they need it to be, then they kind of open their mind to it all. Right. Right. Well, cool, man. Uh, I think we're probably closing up on the, the end of what I discussed with you before the show, what we were going to discuss. What have, uh, what have we not talked about that you'd like our listeners to, to know or something that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? Um, I would say uh, one thing that I had kind of noted for myself was that as uh, important as taking control of and recognizing certain thought processes and things that benefit the way I do things. Um, the counterbalance to that and the, uh, the other half of the power of mindfulness is recognizing the negative thoughts and emotions and what those mean. And that ha that's been important to me, I guess. I mean, I, I, I think it's important for everybody. Um, but basically what I recognized in a lot of my introspection was that Basically, any of those hard-to-control emotions, those anger, anxiety, those consuming emotions, it's pretty rare that they're not driven by fear, ignorance, stubbornness. And it's these things, and that's where that introspection becomes so important because if I wasn't able to get to a point of honesty with myself, then could never get to a point of honesty with others. And so I just, I wanted to touch on the importance of addressing the really hard stuff, you know, because it's easy. I think people get turned on to mindfulness because it's like, oh, well, you know, especially for people like me, they're like, oh, you're an Olympian, you know, what, what did you do? And like, and a lot of people talk about thinking positively and always being productive with their thoughts. But I think it's just half of the equation. I think it's just important to dig deep and address the things that are uncomfortable and recognize that we are human and we have some uh, some challenges with being rash with emotion and things like that. And, and it's maybe more important to be able to recognize when those are creeping in and quiet those and be honest with ourselves. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, that seems to be a, a theme across this podcast is like, I don't know if five or six guests of mine have talked about negative self-talk and the kind of the story that we tell ourselves um, and, and how quieting your mind, uh, whether it's through mindfulness or through meditation, can really help with that and how important the quieting of your mind is in that, in that way, that, you know, that introspection that you were talking about. It's looking deeply into who you are, what's important to you, and then, and then you don't always have to be super productive in your, in your mind. As a matter of fact, sometimes it does pay to just calm your mind right so yeah i think that's great um man we, has that come into play with kids yeah yeah exactly right 
the, the more efficient I can be with that. You know, I mean, it's it's so funny because I mean, she's my daughter's two years old. Of course, she, it's gonna be frustrating. She's gonna like, get into drawers and throw things down, <laughs> make messes. But like, what right do I have to get upset about that? She's just testing what? boundaries and learning about the world, you know. And to be able to quickly turn around and not yell at her and just kind of go, okay. Sure. It's frustrating not... on her point from her point. Ah, uh, sorry, from her point of view as well, because she doesn't understand everything. She doesn't understand that opening those drawers is dangerous. Maybe, you know, there's knives or something in there that she's not supposed to get into. She doesn't know that. Uh my little one, right. <laughs> my uh my almost three year old little girl, um, she started if if we, you know, kind of snap at her about, you know, getting in a drawer or get doing something that she's not supposed to, <laughs> she's she started telling us she looks at us real sad and then says, you hurt my feelings and then walks off to the back of the house. <laughs> so, so she's got her own level of frustration going on as well. Um, but we've, exactly. we've started teaching her um, the breathing techniques, funny enough, as, as a little one. And, you know, once we calm her down after the initial upset feelings or hurt feelings that she has, we tell her, you know, take some deep breaths and then blow out like you're blowing out a, a candle on a cake. And she'll do that and she calms down and, and is able to come back to the sweet little girl that we know. I mean, even when she says, uh, you hurt my feelings and storms off, she's still a sweet little girl. But yeah, it's, uh, it's funny to watch them change as you teach them the breathing techniques, even at that young age. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that works as well in adults. You know, if you can, whether, whether you're using breathing techniques or just calming yourself in emotional situations that calm is contagious so yeah. if you're able to take a few breaths and be the voice of reason be that calm i think whether a child or an adult they will quickly uh, adopt that calm sure sure absolutely and and obviously the other the the reverse is true if you start getting amped up they that's also contagious right uh you know our, exactly. our little ones if they see us getting amped up they'll get amped up or or even other adults that were around um if we were able to control what it is we're feeling um then we can bring them down so awesome man well it sounds like you're doing a great job as a dad man uh, no doubt that you would have um but keep it up and uh, and as mentioned at the beginning of the show, I know you're looking into writing some children's books. So we hope to see some of those on the shelves, you know, in the in the coming months or coming <laughs> years, however long it takes. But uh, definitely, once once you get it out, let us know uh, through the I will do that through the network that we built, and uh, we look forward to seeing Graham Watanabe on uh, as a as an author on those, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm uh, excited to see what you continue to do and appreciate you making this a part of an everyday conversation. Yeah, thanks, brother. It's it's fun, man. And I definitely appreciate your coming on the show and sharing your story and, and good luck with everything you've got going on and, and really cherish those moments you've got with, with your little one. It sounds like you're doing that and you're doing a great job at it. So keep it up. Will do. Cool, man. For our listeners, thanks for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and family. And remember, listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. 
Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.